welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have a special surprise for you. I have a little bit of a sneak preview of the book Malignant. This is the introduction of the book. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Coming soon, Malignant, the audiobook, narrated by me. Unfortunately, without music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. However, you get to enjoy it here. So, here it is, Malignant, the introduction. If you want to pick up Malignant right now, you can get the hardcover and Kindle edition on Amazon. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Introduction. There is nothing so extravagant and irrational which some philosophers have not maintained for truth. Jonathan Swift. Even in 2020, cancer remains a leading killer, where progress is often measured in days or weeks. Much of what makes cancer intractable is its complex and opaque biology. How does the disease originate, propagate, and too often, dominate? Why are some cancers highly aggressive, but others slow-growing? Why are some parts of the body more commonly affected than others? What degree of cancer is due to genetics or inborn characteristics, and what percentage is due to the environment? What fuels the disease and how can it be hindered? What future strategies are most promising? For these questions, there are some imperfect, tentative answers based upon the best biological understanding of 2020. There are stories I could tell and references I could cite, but I will not be doing that. I will not answer or speculate about these questions in this book for the simple reason this is not a cancer biology book. This is a book about how the actions of human beings, our policies, our standards of evidence, and our drug regulation incentivize the pursuit of marginal or unproven therapies at lofty and unsustainable prices. This is a book about what we can do differently to make serious and sustained progress against cancer. This is a book about how we can avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. This is a book about cancer drug policy medical evidence, and governmental regulation. This is a book about what is entirely under our control. There's a sad chapter in cancer history that captures many of the themes of this book. It captures how hype, money, low standards of evidence, and bias can come together to mislead cancer patients. 
It is a microcosm for the issues we will discuss over the course of this book. Understanding its lessons is a starting point to make sense of cancer policy. It is the story of the rise and fall of autologous stem cell transplants for breast cancer. The 1980s comprised the second decade of President Richard Nixon's war on cancer. By 1980, a number of anti-cancer drugs had been discovered. Most of these drugs were cytotoxic or cell-killing. They killed cells more or less proportionately to the rate at which cells undergo division. Cancer happens to have more cells undergoing division than normal cells, in many cases. And these drugs killed cancer cells preferentially. Common toxicities affected other cells that divided rapidly, such as the bone marrow, the maker of your blood cells, the lining of the mouth and intestines, and of course, hair follicles. Combination cytotoxic chemotherapy achieved some early successes. Diseases like Hodgkin's lymphoma and testicular cancer saw durable, long-lasting remissions, perhaps even cures. Other cancers, such as breast, colon, or lung cancer, would shrink when exposed to specific cytotoxic drugs. At the same time, impartial, empirical assessments of what had been accomplished were sobering. A 1986 article in the New England Journal of Medicine by John Bylar and Elaine Smith concluded that progress against cancer between 1950 and 1982 had been marginal at best. An idea began to gain popularity. Perhaps the reason cancer drugs had not cured more tumor types was because of the insufficient dosage. If we could achieve a higher dose, we might be able to purge the body of the last stubborn cancer cells. In a 1988 article in the New York Times, two expert oncologists echoed this sentiment. Mark Lipman, a breast cancer oncologist said, it's hard to get doctors to escalate the dose of chemotherapy. Everyone wants to back off, but to my mind, the evidence is absolutely convincing that the dose intensity is correlated with survival. Bruce Chabner, then director of the Division of Cancer Treatment at the National Cancer Institute said, doctors should raise the dose of chemotherapy as high as the patients can tolerate. Of course, one of the major barriers to the dose of chemotherapy is the toxicity. Very high doses kill off normal hematopoietic cells, which are precursors to new blood cells that reside in the bone marrow. Thus, an idea emerged. In order to push the dose even higher, perhaps we could remove some bone marrow stem cells, deliver a lethal dose of therapy, and then reinfuse the stem cells to save the patient. This was called autologous stem cell transplant. During the 1980s, different groups began experimenting with this therapy, particularly for women with breast cancer. A seminal 1989 report compiled their findings. They found 172 reports of the procedure being performed. In 58% of those patients, tumors shrank 50% or more. A 1992 report found that 70% of women undergoing stem cell transplants for breast cancer had tumor shrinkage, while this was only true for 39% of those undergoing conventional treatment. Tumor shrinkage, known as the response rate, is a measure of tumors on x-rays or CT scans and not a measure of whether patients lived longer or better. It is a classic surrogate endpoint in oncology, that is, a measurable value that serves as a stand-in for what may actually matter to patients. Moreover, these were uncontrolled experiences, so there was no direct comparison for the patients who received the experimental therapy. Ideally, a randomized trial would have been performed to test whether the stem cell transplant strategy was better than the current strategy of lower-dose chemotherapy. 
Nevertheless, newspapers promoted the idea that these transplants were better than routine care. They told anecdotes of one person here or there who happened to do well. Experts were eager to add bold, unsubstantiated quotes to the mix. Dr. James Armitage in the Washington Post said, there's a developing consensus that for some patients, this is the best available therapy. Dr. Wyndham Wilson of the National Cancer Institute said in 1989, we are now fine tuning the procedure. Of course, it's hard to fine tune something that had not been proven in the first place. Dr. Karen Antman of Harvard said, autologous bone marrow transplant can be a very effective form of treatment. Again, there were no randomized trials to support this claim. The added cost of the transplant over routine care was substantial, as much as $60,000 to $200,000 at the time. Massive pressure was placed on insurers to pay for this therapy, with research of dubious value used to justify the push. For instance, a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association argued that the therapy provided a substantial benefit and would cost $115,800 per year of life saved. How was that dollar per life year figure reached? by assuming the therapy was effective in the first place. Randomized trials were at last launched to answer the question, but they faced an uphill battle. A for-profit industry had already emerged, providing the procedure to desperate and willing women. One such firm, Response Oncology, boasted $128 million in revenue in 1998 alone. Private hospitals advertised and competed for patients. A hospital owned by Cancer Treatment Centers of America even offered to pay for patients to travel to receive the treatment. In 1995, the first randomized trial found that the treatment did improve outcomes, doubling survival. By 1999, that finding failed to be replicated in four other randomized trials. Eventually, evidence suggestive of fraud was uncovered for the one successful trial and its publication was retracted. By 2000, the same physician who was so confident the key to breast cancer was just a matter of dose, wrote an editorial that served as the treatment's obituary. The failure of autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer was not that we tried or tested the practice. It was that we applied it broadly prior to the results of well-done randomized trials. We expanded its use before we knew it worked and we did so fueled by hype, money, hope, and bioplausibility. Altogether, more than 30,000 women received autologous stem cell transplants in the United States between 1989 and 1995, and over 40,000 by the end of that decade. This cost billions of dollars. Three to 15% of women died during the treatment, while survivors faced massive toxicity. Patients were not helped. I tell the short version of the story of autologous stem cell transplant as an introduction to this book because it is a microcosm of the themes to be covered here. It is an example of how cancer policy, not cancer biology, so often fails patients. Below are just a few of the lessons that autologous transplant for breast cancer raises and where I will discuss them further. Many cancer therapies have astonishing and unsustainable costs. If anything, our cancer therapies have only escalated in cost since the halcyon days of the 1980s and 90s. New cancer drugs routinely cost $100,000 per year of therapy and some more than $400,000 per dose. I discuss the crushing cost of cancer treatments and what they mean for patients and society in chapters 1, 4, and 13.
surrogate endpoints often fail to predict which therapies improve survival. The popularity and enthusiasm for autologous transplant for breast cancer was driven by its ability to generate a high response rate. A response rate is the percentage of cancer patients whose tumors shrink 30% or more after treatment. That's an arbitrary number, and in chapters 2 and 3, I clarify how surrogate endpoints can be both effectively and ineffectively used. In chapters 9 and 11, I explain how response rate can mislead. Randomized trials are needed in cancer medicine, and historically controlled studies often exaggerate benefit. It is difficult, if not impossible, to compare the carefully selected patients in one uncontrolled phase two study against prior reports or experiences of patients, but that was the crux of the false inference regarding the efficacy of stem cell transplant for breast cancer. 100 patients treated with this intervention did better than other patients, but these were very selected patients and the comparison was flawed. In chapter nine, I discuss why randomized trials measuring survival are essential to ensuring our therapies work as well as we hope they do. Just because something is logical or plausible does not ensure success. It is, or at least was, highly plausible that eliminating breast cancer was a matter of dose. A wealth of basic science publications made this case, and a number of models of cancer growth and death would justify the practice. Still, just because something is plausible, even deeply plausible, there is no assurance it works. I show this lesson over and over in what follows, particularly in chapter 11. Enthusiasts of novel therapies often hype them long before credible data are generated. Throughout this book, I show that proponents often engage in hype and that they tend not to let evidence or proof or data get in their way. The oncology drug pipeline is sometimes called the hype line for the way in which we let rhetoric outpace reality. Chapters five and eight take a close look at hype in cancer medicine and explain why it is so corrosive. Cost-effectiveness studies can be deeply problematic. In the case of autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer, researchers assumed that the therapy was effective and then a dollar value per life year added was calculated. However, the therapy was not effective. We assumed the very thing we should have tried to prove. We see many problems with cost-effectiveness studies in oncology, including the issue of assuming efficacy that arise over and over. Chapters one and four describe this issue in depth. Last, Stem cell transplantation raised a slew of miscellaneous issues described in this book. Anecdotal medicine can mislead. Some patients aren't necessarily super responders to drugs or therapies, but simply have slow growing tumors destined to do well no matter what treatment is used. Chapter eight, the transition between phase two and phase three trials is complex and many interventions fall by the wayside, chapters nine and 11. The role of financial and professional conflicts can be perverse, chapter six and seven. In this book, I make the case that just as with stem cell transplant for breast cancer, so much of the challenge facing cancer patients is not cancer biology, but rather the inappropriate use of cancer policy. In 1999, facing difficulty in recruiting patients for a randomized trial of stem cell transplant for breast cancer, Larry Norton remarked, 50 years from now, we will look back at this period with horror and say, 
How could this have happened? Now, 20 years later, looking back reminds us just how much our system remains the same. Bad policy and bad evidence continue to work against people who have cancer. Audience. I wrote this book with several audiences in mind. The first includes general readers who are curious about how cancer therapies are developed, tested, assessed, priced, marketed, and discussed. The second audience includes trainees in oncology, students, residents, fellows, and even practitioners. Some of us are always learning. I hope to articulate some of the implicit curriculum of cancer training. For example, how to interpret and incorporate the latest trial results in your practice. The third audience includes experts in healthcare policy. What systemic solutions could improve the care of people with cancer and lead to the development of more transformational drugs? As with any book that caters to a large body of readers, I may not always be able to please everyone. Oncologists may, at times, wonder why I'm repeating myself, and some topics may feel technical and abstruse for lay readers. As far as possible, I try to alert the reader to these moments and urge them to skip forward. I am hopeful that, on the whole, the themes of this book crystallize in the minds of all readers, though surely by means of diverse paths. Controversy Much of what I discuss in this book is controversial. I have spent considerable time providing citations and justifications for the arguments made here, and I don't expect to persuade the reader on every topic or point I myself am open to refining or revising my thinking on any specific statements made here. Instead, I will settle for convincing you of the broad strokes of my argument, that more cancer clinical trials should measure outcomes that actually matter to people with cancer, that patients on those trials should look more like actual global citizens, that we need drug regulators to raise, not perpetually lower, the bar for approval that we need patient advocates and experts who are non-conflicted, not receiving money from the companies who sell products to cancer patients, and that we must all strive to be absolutely honest in our rhetoric and free from hype. The biology of cancer continues to unravel year by year, but as of 2020, it remains both fascinating and opaque. There are many questions I enjoy puzzling over, but I know I cannot answer. The policy of cancer medicine is no less fascinating. Logical principles have emerged through practice. There is both art and science to cancer care. And more than anything, cancer policies are human-made. We created them, and insofar as the effects of those policies deviate from our goals or desires, insofar as they lead us astray, we can fix them. We can bend and break and shape cancer policy to work towards the interests of people who have cancer. Our policies can serve patients instead of companies. This book is my attempt to describe how that can be achieved. You've been listening to the introduction of Malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. 
Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>